You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Retrice, Director and Professor at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University, and this is our Religica Theo Lab. And today I'm speaking with Nikhil Mandalaparthi, who is the Advocacy Director for Hindus for Human Rights an organization that advocates for pluralism, civil and human rights in South Asia and North America. And previously, Nikhil had worked at the Aspen Institute's Inclusive America Project. And his writing and reporting on religion and politics in South Asia and its diaspora has appeared in global media outlets. Today, we're going to be discussing Hindus for Human Rights, and alongside that, also an Instagram account called Voices of Bhakti that Nikhil runs and showcases the poetry on religion, caste, and gender from South Asia and beyond in over 30 languages. Nikhil also serves as a board member of Sadhana, Coalition of Progressive Hindus. Today, we're talking about the rise of ideology, Hindu nationalism as we see other forms of nationalism, and how we respond to that, including also the creative impulses that provide alternative responses and that are important for our own societal well-being. Take a listen. I think it's fair to say that a number of our listeners don't have uh, information about Hindus for Human Rights. That's the organization that you have worked with. How long have you been with this organization? So I have been formally sort of as a advocacy director, I just started in March of this year. So just past the like six month mark and informally I have been volunteering, you know, for a few months before that. And and I'm very familiar with some of the organizers and founders. And is Hindus for Human Rights, is that nationally related or is internationally? Is it doing a bit of both? Yeah, so we are a human rights advocacy organization based here in the United States, founded by Indian Americans, um, who we have roots in India, but for the most part, we're all residing in the U.S. And Hindus for Human Rights sort of came out actually of a earlier organization, um, which is called Sadhana Coalition of Progressive Hindus, which was founded in 2011 and represents, I think, one of the, the first sort of explicitly like progressive Hindu organization here in the U.S. Um, to, designed to sort of build a progressive movement within the Hindu community here. Um, and sort of over the years, as, as Sadhana was growing, a lot of the work that, that Sadhana does, and I'm a board member of um, Sadhana as well, a lot of that work is building sort of progressive community spaces, thinking about questions of religious reform and, and what does it mean to be Hindu and, you know, passionate about social justice, all of those sort of existential questions. And in the last few years, though, these questions had a really real impact in India, where there is this rising Hindu nationalist ideology. There's been a lot of violence against minorities in India and all of this real on the ground sort of consequences of, of this ideology. And so Hindus for Human Rights sort of came out of sadhana as a purely sort of political advocacy voice that's focusing completely on human rights issues, civil rights issues, and providing a Hindu voice in these sort of struggles and issues. So back to your original question, we are based here in the U.S., but a lot of our work focuses on promoting pluralism and civil rights and human rights in South Asia, mostly in India. Um, And so I'm the advocacy director with the organization and 
really focused on here in Washington, D.C., trying to push our administration to be more vocal about the human rights situation, declining democracy in India and in the region at large. So you have a number of different religiously based organizations, nonprofit organizations or NGOs in the country or in the world are values based. So you might have, you know, anything from Christian to Jewish, Zoroastrian, all across the the board. What are some of the values, if you could say, you know, when you're asked about Hindus for human rights, what are the values that inform an advocacy platform? You mentioned social justice principles. You know, what are the two or three of those values that are that are unique, let's say, or even just really significant to the work that you do every day? Yeah, I mean, I think we at Hindus for Human Rights talk about, you know, our three guiding principles as um, shanti, nyaya, and, and satya, which are Sanskrit words which mean peace, justice, and truth. And for any sort of organization that is working on these issues, I think these are at the core of, of the work. It is really trying to, of course, build peace and, and advocate for truth and fighting for justice. But something that I think is really powerful in us using these words is that they do have a resonance in kind of Hindu practice and and ritual. You know, the word Shanti, for example, which means peace, is what every Hindu prayer concludes with is Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. You you repeat that three times and it's calling for, you know, it's a literally just means repeating peace three times. And for the most part, you know, I think a lot of people when they're just practicing their faith, they're not necessarily thinking about, you know, what does it actually mean to have a world where there is peace, which means, you know, economic justice, social justice, environmental, all of these things. And so for us to say, you know, we believe in Shanti as well. And and to achieve that value in practice, we're, you know, fighting for marginalized communities and oppressed communities. Um, and, And similarly, you know, we define our vision sort of ideal worldview as using the Sanskrit word lokasangraha, which means sort of well-being of the world and well-being of all, which again comes from the the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the major Hindu texts and and not necessarily a a word that people interpret to translate to social justice and rather it's a more idyllic and um, just a a not very world-focused type of vision. It doesn't really take into account political and social realities. But for us, we're we're trying to take all of these kernels of ethical sort of moral vision from our traditions and like infuse them with this political urgency. Um, Yeah. So I'll I'll stop there. Well, let me ask this question then about Lokas Sandraha, this this sense of of well-being, which is inclusive of the whole community, right? It's a sense of, of welcoming and invitation uh, to extended humanity, and and yet we live in a context today. And you were naming this just a moment ago. I I would call it kind of rising ideologies. We see nationalisms of different kinds in the world that are religiously based, maybe ethnically or ethno-religiously based, as some may call it. And it seems that those run contrary to the very kind of principle of well-being that you're identifying. That there are. Um, and I might even say kind of enclosed, I don't know, teleologies, you know, where it's just very clear, more of a hard line or think of a, if the listener, like maybe, I can't think of another image, but like an apple, you know, just impenetrable. Like this is the truth and there is no contrary truth outside of the rind of this thing. And 
that makes it particularly difficult and dangerous even as an ideology. I'd love to know what your sense is of the kinds of rising ideologies that you see. And we've also had some initial uh, conversation about, say, Hindu nationalism that you're, you know, you're having to contend with in your organization. Could you speak to that as well? For sure. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the reasons why I said we're taking these very familiar values and, and concepts from our traditions and sort of revitalizing them and, and putting them in a very political, urgent sort of framework is because we're seeing the, the same thing happening in our community, but from the right, you know, the far right who are similarly weaponizing various aspects of our traditions and, and cultures and heritage for a very different vision of society, one which is, you know, marked by like oppression and, and violence and um, the systematic sort of disenfranchisement of large sections of, of India's population. And so you talked about Hindu nationalism, which is really one of the primary focuses of our advocacy. I'd say our two priorities are really on, on Hindu nationalism and, and also on caste. But Hindu nationalism is this perfect example, I think, of a political ideology that has come out of a, a religious tradition, as so many of, of these right-wing ideologies do. The, the advocates of Hindu nationalism, you know, they call themselves Hindus, they use that label, they're, I won't say that they're not Hindus, but their vision of Hindu identity and of India's history, the history of Hindu traditions, is one which in very, I think, every way contrasts with our own understanding here at Hindus for Human Rights. It's a much more hardline, black and white sort of vision of the world and, and of our traditions. And, you know, Hindu traditions very broadly are, you know, there's a global set of religious and cultural traditions that are practiced all over the world, wherever um, the diaspora has gone. You know, many of them do date back several centuries and you could say millennia. And Hindu nationalism, on the other hand, is a very modern political ideology. Right? And it came out during the time of British rule, British colonialism, at a time where you know the Indian nationalist movement was starting to take formation. And there's this question that's arising of if the British are not here, you know, what does a independent India look like? And so there are kind of two competing visions, I would say, of, of Indian identity. One is a what we would call the secular vision of uh, India, which is one in which recognizes India's sheer diversity of religions and cultures and, and peoples, um, and sort of, at least in theory, is meant to give everyone an equal you know, seat at the table and, and um, who gets to be an Indian and who lays claim to that identity versus Hindu nationalism is a very clear ethno-nationalist identity form of Indian identity, which says this is a Hindu majority country. So Hindus, this should be a Hindu state. Uh, Hindu Rashtra is, is the language that they use. And for the earliest ideologues of this ideology, you know, Hindu was used almost as like an ethnic label and rather than a, a religious or, or cultural sense. And the person who coined the word Hindutva, which is the name of this ideology of Hindu nationalism, he was an atheist. He was like not a religious person, but for him, Hindu was, was this ethnic identity, one which was 
most importantly contrasted with Muslim and Christian. Um, and so Hindutva, which is Hindu nationalism, is this ideology that Muslims, Christians, other minorities do not belong in India. They never have. They've always been these foreign invaders oppressing the Hindu majority. And so in order to be Indian, you have to be Hindu. And it's a fusing of the Indian identity with uh, a Hindu identity. So that is really what we are trying to push back at, at Hindus for Human Rights, is this vision of Hindu identity as requiring Islamophobia, casteism, this sheer sort of insecurity complex, which I think has, we see this in countries all over the world where the majority is led to feel like they're the persecuted people in their own country. Um, and the really disturbing thing is that this ideology has taken root, of course, in India in the last several years with the election of Narendra Modi, who is the current prime minister in 2014. And of course, several years before that, we're just leading up to this moment, this, this rising Hindu nationalist ideology. But in the diaspora, the Indian diaspora here, particularly among the Hindu diaspora, this ideology has really taken hold. Um, and you'll find that it's, it's you know really sad to say this, but you look up any sort of major Hindu organization or temple in this country, and it's more likely than not that they are sympathetic to, if not advocates for this Hindu nationalist you know vision of our culture and, and identity. And so we are currently the only Hindu organization that's really pushing back at that and saying, you know, we are Hindus and to be Hindu does not require you to be Islamophobic or casteist or, you know, bigoted in these ways. There's another way of living this identity. There's a lot in what you just said that I think is worth uh, repeating if we had the time. But I think fundamentally, this question of what counts for the vision of the future of a community in the diaspora and no matter where it's located uh, on the earth or where it calls home, we can think of other ethno-religious realities or context communities that are facing similar kinds of challenges in the world, although unique, right, to each context. I think of the context of, say, really white, very conservative pockets of Christianity in the United States, which also bear many of the same features that you identified, including a kind of mythology that's wrapped around it about who's in and who's out. And often um, those who are out they don't belong fundamentally to that particular community, and maybe they shouldn't belong at all, which is where I think danger starts to really uh, pervade. The foreign invader, as you identified, and the litmus test for the authentic voice, then, of the religion, or of the community, I should say, becomes a, a question mark. And I wonder if that's, you know, in your work, where you have noted we're a progressive voice that's contrary to the kind of hard kernel of an ideology of this kind. And we see this, as, as we're discussing, in different contexts, different religions around the world. How difficult is it to make your case about what counts for authenticity, what counts for authority? What is the truth, let's say, going back the millennia that you can point to and say, we have a valid, not just a valid or even a relevant, but we have a point about that that is filled with veracity or truth that is inarguable. 
in such a time as this, where those are very slippery things to claim and hold on to. Does that make sense to you, or how would you describe it? Yeah, I think just to set some context um, for sort of what this is looking like in our community, there's this think tank in D.C. which did this survey of Indian American attitudes last year, and they did ask a question about, a few questions about Hindu nationalism, Mm -hmm. and they found that 53% of Indian Americans believe that Hindu nationalism is a threat to India's democracy. So that's just, you know, just about a, a slight majority. And um, we're, so this is an issue that has really divided, you know, the community. And if you look at Hindus specifically, only 40% said that they thought Hindu nationalism was a, a threat to India, which implies that the majority then are, you know, in some sort of support of what's going on. And that's a high and percentage, 47%, that, yeah. as you're mentioning. And you see this across, you know, across uh, many of the communities we just discussed. There seems to be significant yeah. global division. Anyway, I don't mean to interrupt you. Please go ahead. No, no, not at all. I mean, it just shows that, you know, this is really a, an issue where we're trying to push the needle in, in, in one way. And, and I think there is some time and, and some sort of opportunity to shift things. But, you know, that if you contrast those numbers to like the share of Indian Americans who believe white supremacy is a threat to the U.S. is much higher. So there's like this cognitive dissonance almost where we're able to sit here and say what Trump represented, what the Republican Party platform represents, all of that. We see that, you know, this is a a threat to our community as, you know, mostly South Asians, immigrants, recent immigrants. All of that is, you know, targeting us as people of color and all of these other identities. But then when it comes to India, we like turn around and and most people seem to be in complete support of of what Modi is doing and and what's happening over there. How do you account for that cognitive dissonance? Is it a question of being too close to one's own community and being able to have more objectivity about, you know, what feels a little further away, perhaps politically? I think it's a lot of things. It's, you know, I can say, Perhaps for older generations or, you know, my parents' generation, you know, the India that they have in mind, the the culture that they are trying to upkeep is the India that they left, you know, several decades ago. Um, And to look back at that, you know, then from sitting in the U.S., there is this sense that what's happening in, in the U.S., you know, Western media is exaggerating it. You know, things weren't this bad when I was growing up, you know, they they may say. And so... Clearly, you know, things could not have gotten to the level that the New York Times is reporting or, or Washington Post. There's this like distrust, I think, of of what Western media has really latched onto since Modi took office. But I, I think there's also this sense of like we're not being harmed by the Modi government's policies um, in in the way that my Muslim friends or our Christian friends or Dalit friends have real stories of like their family members being thrown in jail or, or, you know, detained by police or just harassed in in all of these different ways where it hasn't hit a lot of Hindu, you know, upper caste, privileged South Asians who make up the the majority of the Indian American community. So there is just the sense of it's not harming us. So why should we really be too concerned, which is difficult, but I think in terms of the reaction from the community and, and all of this advocacy we're doing, so much of our work is 
partnering with Muslim groups and Christian groups, Dalit groups, and secular organizations, of course, as well. And I think there's this very insidious response from the the right-wing, more conservative members of the community, which is to latch onto this idea that we are fake Hindus or anti-Hindus or we are doing this out of some sort of hatred for the label Hindu and the like self-hatred, you know, self-hatred. Yeah, in your own it's community. like the self-hatred. They use all of these terms, like you know, sepoy is a very common term you'll hear, which is a word that refers to the Indians who fought for the British army in India. So now that term has been refracted and it's used to for any sort of person of Indian descent who is um you know speaking out against Hindu nationalism or, or they'll use words like uh dhimmi, which is used to refer to like during Muslim rule in India, like Hindus who had to pay tax for, for not being Muslim. So we are either being paid by the the Muslims or by the Christians or by someone else, but there's no way that we can be real Hindus. There's that sense. And I'd say that's not just from social media, but one of the largest Hindu organizations in the U.S., the Hindu American Foundation, has actually filed a lawsuit against our co-founders uh, at Hindus for Human Rights, as well as a Muslim activist, a Christian activist, and a university professor, all who speak out very forcefully against um, Hindu nationalism and its network here in the U.S. The fact that it's even reached you know, that level of filing a, a lawsuit and a defamation suit in D.C. District Court, that's, I think, for, you know, for the most part, that has been the largest response that we've gotten. And it's very much a wanting to wipe us out of existence. It's complicated too, isn't it? Because defamation suits of that kind call into question the health of a democracy where freedom of expression and speech are seen as elemental to, you know, to that health itself. Uh, something else you've mentioned, it seems, you know, this is the, the critique that you've received appears to me to be drawing from the same kind of playbook as you see other communities also dealing with. For instance, you know, a, a critique about the government of Israel can be seen, if if I'm coming from the Jewish community, as a kind of a form of self-hatred. That's been a trope as well, when in fact one might be uh, just a very concerned citizen. I could say the same thing about the United States. If I come from the Christian background and uh, am from a progressive context and am critiquing the kind of neoconservative white Christian nationalist, then I might be branded as neither Christian nor really a patriot. In both cases, it's a way of placing me on the outskirts. And maybe also something you haven't mentioned in terms of, say, shunning or kind of remove removal tactic entirely. How does that impact your work? You mentioned the Dalit community in particular, which is something I think singularly interesting. For those listeners who don't understand the relationship, not just in terms of caste, but but your working relationship with the Dalit community, could you explain that and in some of the work that you do? Uh, as a way of kind of fortifying those relationships. Sure. Yeah. So for anyone who is unfamiliar, the word Dalit refers to people who are formerly known as untouchables um, in India and in South Asia. These are, when you're talking about the caste system and caste hierarchies, Dalits are at the very bottom of all of these systems of caste we see in, in South Asia. And Working and building a relationship with Dalit groups has been, I think, one of the most difficult and important processes that we've been engaged with at Hindus for Human Rights. 
because in the last several decades, most famously with the great scholar and lawyer and drafter of the Indian constitution, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who was a Dalit, which is another interesting point that in all of this activism, especially in India, people really point to the constitution as like this progressive living document. And unlike in the U.S., where it was written by slave owners and, and these elite sort of men, the constitution was drafted by someone who came from one of the most oppressed parts of Indian society. And so uh, Dr. Ambedkar very famously said that, you know, I was born a Hindu, but I will not die a Hindu um, because of the oppression and, and marginalization that he faced in his life from upper caste uh, Hindu communities. And so there's been this mass movement, um, which is not in any way, you know, I think shaped the lives of, or has not affected the majority of Dalit communities who, who remain um, under sort of the Hindu label, but several Dalit communities have converted out of Hinduism in, in the last several decades to Buddhism, most famously, as well as Christianity, Islam, and, and other uh, religions. So when we talk about working with Dalit organizations and anti-caste organizations, a lot of these groups very justifiably are skeptical and, and wary about working with a Hindu organization because the oppression they're fighting was legitimized and created and, and sustained by Hindu religious traditions and texts and, and scriptures and institutions. And so the idea even of a progressive Hindu identity is an oxymoron for many of these um, organizations because, you know, in order to be progressive, you have to leave the religion and you have to, Dr. Ambedkar very famously said, set dynamite to the Vedas and Shastras, these documents of that codified and, and sustained caste. So what we've been doing at Hindus for Human Rights is really trying to find a, a middle sort of path where we are rejecting the Hindu nationalist ideology, the language of the right wing and the way they talk about our traditions. But we're also trying to find a way to articulate a Hindu identity, a, a progressive vision of Hindu identity that does not contribute to casteism and the oppression of Dalits and rather also rejects caste. And so it's like we're getting so much pushback from the right and we do get some pushback from the left who are deeply skeptical of any sort of progressive Hindu movement that, you know, it's difficult, but I, I will say that we have managed to build trust and working relationships with a number of Dalit groups here in the U.S. and, and in India, you know, always a work in progress. And, and as an organization which is mostly upper caste, you know, we're always trying to play that supporting role, ally role when it comes to our advocacy around caste. Um, and, and so never to take too much space or, or the spotlight, but just uplift, you know, the work that they're doing. And, you know, sometimes we just have to sit and, and listen to the uncomfortable truths that, that people are saying about what our tradition represents for them. And, you know, that's just part of it, but it, it is deeply important. And, and for me, you know, there's no way that I can do this work without being conscious of caste and, and how to think about, is it even possible to, to, articulate this Hindu identity that rejects um, caste as well. Well, Nikhil, something else that you've said, I think is so important for, for the listener to understand is, you know, often I think we understand uh, 
progressive voices as somehow, uh, and again, this is meant to be a destabilizing term as the kind of snowflakes or the university folks, the ones that aren't really engaged. But that's not at all what I've heard you just say. In fact, you know, being able to hold the line between, say, nationalism, which is a kind of saturated inclusion, hardline ideology, as we're talking about on the one hand, and those who would press you to fully reject you know, full-on leaving, like in that middle space, that liminal space between those, to be able to claim ground, to remain in the tradition, to encourage discourse and dialogue and engagement, um, to encounter kind of uh, significant societal challenges and pursue policy alongside other partners, many of whom you've, you've identified already. Many of those partners are the ones that perhaps on either side, but particularly I think on the first side I mentioned, like a neoconservative element would suggest, why are you in conversation with Muslims or Christians or others, whoever those external groups may be that in any form weaken that nationalist identity? You're holding the ground. Hindus for Human Rights is holding the ground on that. But I want to ask you also, in terms of logic, there's no real rational discourse, I think, that can contend with ideology of this kind. Like, it's always going to find a way of refuting you by out-arguing you or out-shouting you or by shaming you. But I think there's something else that you've mentioned to me in terms of voices of bhakti and the role of, say, art or poetry or culture or other means of getting at, rather than a straight-on descriptive argument or discourse, other means of getting at kind of truth claims, in this case that are highlights within, say, South Asian poetry. And you've identified, if you could say more about what voices of bhakti is doing, and is that a kind of mechanism, do you think? that's attempting to foil the effort to simply turn this issue into one of ones and zeros, or you're with us or you're without us. And how would you describe that? So Voices of Bhakti is a project that I started a couple of years ago, summer of 2019. It's an Instagram account. It's at Voices of Bhakti. And it's a basically a place for me to share South Asian poetry on religion, caste, and gender in a bunch of different languages. I think I, I haven't counted super recently, but at least over 30 languages. And Phenomenal. these are not languages I am fluent in in any way, but I, I rely on, you know, a lot of great work done by translators across the world. And I basically started this project partly because I just personally love poetry and um, I really discovered a, a love for literature and, and poetry in college, particularly South Asian literature. And I was just seeing, this goes back to the conversation around Hindu nationalism and, and the vision of Indian history and culture that they project is this whole narrative of, you know, there was a golden age, right, of Hindu India that collapsed when the Muslims came and then even worsened when the British came and now we're resurrecting this glorious Hindu past. So much of like, when you look at actual arts and cultural traditions in South Asia, rather than being going along with this narrative of thriving and then being devastated by, you know, these foreign invasions, it was a history that reflects cross-cultural vibrancy and borrowing from all over the world. And I think when it comes to Hindu traditions, the way that the right wing talks about them are 
as if that you know these are the last remaining things we have our, of our indigenous civilization. You know, we have to protect our traditions from the Muslims and Christians and and other groups, acting like there was no there was no foreign influence to begin with in in any of our traditions. And so the the type of poetry I'm posting on this page, for example, it's like a Muslim poet who's writing songs to Kali, you know, a Hindu Hindu goddess, or you know, a Hindu poet who is writing poetry that talks about the battle of Karbala, you know, that's uh, very important to Shia Muslims, but bringing in references to the Ramayana, a Hindu epic, and, you know, poetry that simultaneously, this couplet that refers to a, a miracle performed by the god Krishna, as well as Prophet Muhammad. And it's like, all of these little nuggets of, you know, this is real literature that's out there. It's like poetry that's often sung and, and celebrated by communities, and it really contrast with this black and white, you know, completely whatever the opposite of vibrant is. That's the, that's the vision of Hindu nationalism. So I'm just trying to highlight all of that other, you know, real history that, that does exist in our communities, especially, you know, in the ways that it pushes back against this vision of conflict and of separateness and, and all of that. It's interesting to me, too, because it's almost left brain, right brain. I mean, in the face of conflict, I think what you're doing and encouraging others to do with the Voices of Bhakti is to get creative, to use art and literature, to double down on pluralism, as you're doing, and to do it in a way that I think also suggests that the unalloyed vision of any national history is kind of anemic. It doesn't do much for us. That the richness, the kind of oxygenated life source of all of this is coming from a lot of different places. Is that asking people to risk too much? You know, does that make people feel uncomfortable when they think, there, you mean there's no true, let's say, one route for this? It's coming from a number of different sources. What makes people feel so vulnerable about that as you think about Voices of Bhakti? Yeah, I think that feeling of destabilization is very real. And that's something that I myself underwent, you know, when I was in college and taking these classes about history and literature. Um, and I, for example, growing up, I, I learned this art form, which is called Carnatic music. It's South Indian classical music. It's a very vibrant tradition, um, but today it is practiced almost exclusively by Brahmins, who are the highest caste in, in South India. And I grew up in a rather conservative community, I guess. And the way that I was told about this music is, you know, it's thousands of years old. It is a, you know, a pure form of music that is not influenced by foreign cultures. We revere the great composers of Carnatic music as saints. They're, you know, it's a very devotional art form. Most of the compositions are in praise of Hindu deities. And then when I was in college, I came across these books that really burst this conception completely and, you know, show that Carnatic music as we know it, it really took its, the shape that we recognize it during colonial rule in India in the 1700s and 1800s. And many of the great composers who we revere today, like this uh, Saint Tyagaraja, for example, who we refer to as a saint, you know, he used some English words in his compositions and he used some Urdu words. And there's just so many different examples of the ways in which this music has been influenced by globalization and, and changing politics. And I learned Carnatic music on the violin, which is, a, you know, a European instrument that has been 
completely incorporated and, and transformed into a part of the South Indian art form. And so thinking about the tradition that I am most familiar with, even there, there's like these histories and voices of these women, traditional like hereditary courtesan communities who are completely cut out of the Carnatic scene in the mid 20th century during the nationalist kind of movement. And again, it was this nationalist vision which promoted these ideas about Carnatic music as, you know, this is our untouched culture. This is our highest form of cultural expression, this very elite art form. And so reading about all of these compositions by women, compositions which talked very explicitly about sex and gender and like this whole way of thinking about religion that was, you know, not really taught to me as I was growing up and learning the the art form. I say all of that just to say like, you know, for any art form you pick in South Asia, there's this similar flourishing that was happening. And then it was really colonialism and nationalism, which in many ways may have constrained it or, or changed the way we think about it. But if you just look back to history, there are very pluralistic and important narratives of, of diversity. And this is not to romanticize the past, but just to say that, you know, what we tell each other now about our, our history is usually not the whole picture. I get it. I, I mean, I see even just using this example of Carnatic music. Okay, so let's say you're absolutely right. It's born out in history, and this is deeply alloyed. What does it show about a culture? Creative genius, total adaptivity, recreative capacity, malleability, nimbleness of concept and form, um, new arrangements of beauty that belong fully to the people that are rearranging this medium, and perhaps even something you haven't touched on yet, preparation for the kinds of conversations in the future in culture that are essential and that are coming our way, if not already in front of us, uh, interculturally, how we understand the nature of gender, how we're going to have a peaceful planet amidst climate uh, crises that are not only on our doorstep, but in our living rooms. We have serious societal uh, difficulties and challenges in front of us that will require that kind of cultural nimbleness that isn't perhaps in any particular community entrenched in a sensibility that we must be rooted in one thing rather than kind of outward looking to the world. Let me ask you a, a different question then. You may be doing this work and pursuing Voices of Bhakti at the same time that you're directing as you are in Hindus for Human Rights. But I imagine you also encounter a number of people who don't appreciate that creative impulse. They troll you. We've talked about this in terms of cancel culture today. Could you share that with Lister and and how do you contend with that? Because I think a lot of us have questions of, you know, when we're really facing opposition, what's the best way or what's the way that you're doing it for responding to that that makes sense for the values that are so ingrained in your identity? Yeah, thank you for asking that, because it's definitely been a reality that I have faced as I've been posting and, and growing the page. On one level, it's like almost comical to think about, you know, a poetry account that's dealing with trolling and attacks and all of that. But, you know, that's really the the level that these battles are taking place. It's on a, a cultural sphere as well. And so, you know, for example, there was this post, which I, I know you're familiar with, um, that I shared with you that I made of a, a poem, which is about the Hindu god Krishna. And it was by a queer um, Indo-Guyanese poet, Rajiv Mahabir. 
And I accompanied that poem with a painting by an artist, uh, Nabi Haider Ali, who is a, a Tamil Muslim artist. And the poem really is, is, is kind of a playful queering of the god Krishna. You know, the poet himself is um, gay. And so the poem is it's a very playful, satirical kind of take on Krishna. And I accompanied that with the painting by uh, this artist, which depicted Krishna with, you know, these other men um, in a very intimate way, I guess. Um, and so that also contrasts with Krishna is usually depicted as, you know, as a player, you know, he like has a lot of women around him and he's loved by all and he's very handsome and all of that. So if Krishna can, you know, have all of these women around him, why weren't there, you know, there must have also been some men and, you know, God has no gender, all of that sort of thinking. And so those two painting and, and the poem paired together really anchored some people, I guess. Um, and so I got this like influx of like hundreds and hundreds of comments from all of these right-wing accounts on Instagram that are saying, you know, take this down. This is disrespectful. How can you do this to, you know, our God Krishna? This is anti-Hindu. This is anti-Indian, etc. And it got to a, you know, I had gotten similar comments whenever I've posted poems that are pushing back against Hindu nationalism and against caste. I got very like vicious trolling when I posted a poem by a Dalit poet, which was praising beef, um, you know, which is a very controversial thing because many Hindus consider caste to be sacred. But for Dalits, uh, many Dalit communities, beef and, and meat in general is a very important part of their, their lifestyles. So, you know, on this Krishna post, there was just this massive backlash that kind of erupted. I was seeing, you know, a lot of Hindu nationalist accounts were sending it to each other, urging their followers to spam sort of my notifications. And I did get some like comments that were some messages that said, you know, a police complaint has been filed against this account in Delhi. Um, and in India, you can do that. That's like a religious offense is a, is a thing that you can prosecute in the courts and so there are some screenshots I got of, of complaints being filed, but they didn't have my name or, or sort of actual identifying details. And then some account popped up, which was an attempt to dox me and the artist. And that was like, a you know, doxing is like where you try to expose personal information about someone and their family and all of that. Um, and so this was a attempt to do that with me and my family, and they weren't very successful. I had, because I started working at Industry of Human Rights, I tried to remove all of these sensitive things off the internet beforehand. But that, you know, it was all a little bit unnerving, and it was just a level that I had not dealt with before. And I think for a few days, it was just like kind of stressful, and I didn't really know what was going to come next, because um, I do have family in India, and I don't want to ever put them in danger. And, you know, a few days later, things did die down, but it was a pretty stressful time. And I think for me, I'm very lucky, I guess, to work with people who have dealt with these sort of attacks in the past, um, who are able to just speak to their own experiences and saying, you know, it's okay, things will die down eventually. And, and you know, I think I did get support from a lot of accounts on Instagram and, and a lot of people that I'm close with which all sort of helped, but there isn't really a way to talk about the feeling of just seeing this, like every second you refresh and there's more and more accounts and, and hate. And 
I think it, it does take a toll on you, especially when it's like from your own community. Like if some of these comments are, you know, you're not a real Hindu, you're fake Hindu, anti-Hindu, Hindu-phobic. It's like, okay, so what am I like doing with this? I think, you know, why do I still call myself Hindu if, I, if this is all the backlash that I get? But then I just like keep scrolling down my page and like look at the other things I posted. And I was like, this is why it's important to me. It's like these, all of these other stories and poems and, and stories of who these poets were and, and the type of lives they led. Like all of that is still so important to me and really speaks very profoundly, I think, to the type of identity and, and like vision that I want to embody. And so, you know, it was like a few days of like annoying notifications and it did die down. And I know eventually something else will pop up and that's just how this stuff works. But yeah, it's a reality for all of us. In the minute or so that we have left, you know, we've covered a lot of ground from how we understand a more conservative, ideologically based, ethno-religious identity in the Hindu self-understanding that you're contending with in your work to a creative impulse, which has led you on the one hand to stake a claim and how we can have an alternative discourse. And yet even in that area to find yourself trolled painfully in the way you just described. And I wonder, I mean, first of all, thank you for identifying all of that. It's a lot to bridge over in, in just a short conversation. But I think it's important because invariably we have those who are listening who understand the negative impulse of having been ostracized in some form, the way you've just described, you know, where we really are as a part of this conversation, shunned or left out and blamed, not for what we do, but for who we are, which feels so much more personalized, right? You're not a good, and then fill in the blank, which is more at the essence of who we are than of the activity. It feels more like an assault in that regard. Maybe it's the voice that you share internally at your best, that you would also share externally with those people if you were sitting down and having a tea or a conversation, what advice would you give to those who experience that kind of ostracization today? How would you confer some form of deep need to continue and, and move forward? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think for me, the thing that has sustained me throughout this last few years of my life, you know, doing all of this work is I do feel like I have a community, um, like a spiritual community, a cultural community. A lot of that is through this organization that I'm part of, Sadhana, uh, which is progressive Hindu community building kind of group. And I think, you know, knowing that despite all of these trolls, all of this, you know, lawsuits and whatever coming from people who say they're Hindu, I know I'm like, I'm not the only Hindu who feels the way that I do. And I know that there are other people who share my values and identities in a really meaningful way. And so just like, I know that for anyone who feels left out or, or rejected from the group, like there, I totally value the impulse to then reject the identity, right? To say like, all right, to hell with this, community and label, I'm just going to leave and find something else. And for me, I haven't gotten to that point yet, but I do know that having a progressive Hindu community, you know, circle of friends and people that I really respect and admire 
that has kept me going that like, okay, there, there might be these pushback, but I, I can go back into this space and be myself completely. And so I don't know what I would be doing if there wasn't that sort of space. I guess I would maybe be trying to start something like that. But I think for any group, for like any identity, especially with the internet, there has to be other people out there. And so if you're feeling like this sense of loss or a rejection, like I guarantee there is something, someone who's out there and like maybe it's just as easy as writing an email and then you connect and, you know, that's your community. And that's how I found Sadhana actually. It was just one day I just felt like writing my heart out to this organization and someone replied and now I'm in this work. So that urge for community is very strong and powerful and important. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.